Welcome to Spiritual Alchemy with me, Erica. Let's start today by taking in a nice, deep cleansing breath together, okay? We'll breathe in and we'll breathe out all that no longer serves us. Yes, that is a really good way to start really anything. And it's funny. I often do this before I start anything that's important to me. So, you know, it could be a phone call or a meeting or this podcast, even writing, you know, just something to really, where I need my focus, it really helps me sort of create that, that clean slate. So now that we have cleaned our slates, um, let's get this party started. So we've been discussing relationships And it's really had me doing a lot of reflecting about my own relationships in my life, Um, not only now, but even as a kid growing up. Relationships with my closest friends and my family and how long they lasted and in some cases didn't. Um, So my parents separated when I was really little. I was five. And it had a profound impact on me growing up. Uh, not only emotionally, but on, you know, our life circumstances as well. We moved our living quarters a lot, and I also live with my grandparents for a while. So I definitely think that I've always had a fear of abandonment issues. Um, I think as a result of that, I became a people pleaser And I was always so afraid of anyone being mad at me that often I would become a doormat. You know, I would just do whatever for whomever. And um, as a result, I feel like I really damaged my self-esteem. I feel like I lost pieces of myself. And it took a lot of working through those issues with some of the people in my life, including my parents, as well as... um, counseling for myself, you know, to be able to gain some of those pieces back again and, uh, and to gain strength and to gain self-respect and to own my own power again. So it's really a process and going through this reminded me of a question that came in from one of our listeners, uh, Kathleen, and here is her question. Hi there, Erica. I was listening to the last episode in your relationship series, and you talked a little bit about how our relationships with our parents might affect our relationships today. I guess my question is, what if you didn't have the best relationship with your parents growing up? Thank you, Kathleen. That is a wonderful question. And I'm thinking that our special guest will be able to shed some light on that for you. She has gone through a very, very difficult childhood upbringing, and she's going to share not only what she went through and how she overcame the damage that it did, but how she transformed herself and her life in spite of it. 
She is the author of Finding Happiness, A Path to Self-Acceptance, J. Patricia Gelino. Jen, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor. Okay. Well, before we get started, I really wanted to take a minute and say thank you for your bravery and for sharing your story with us. Um, I really believe that this is going to inspire other people to seek the healing that they need. And that is a huge part of why I started this podcast. So thank you so much for your courage and a big welcome. Thank you. Yeah. So I'll just start right off with, I would like to talk about the book. Um, I read it and I, first of all, have to say that I personally could not imagine what it must have been like growing up with your mom. And I, I mean, I say that with the utmost respect, um, but it is what it is. You know, it was really challenging for you. And I was super blessed, you know, to have a close relationship with my mom. So we're talking right now about the whole relationship series and how perhaps the way that we were raised, you know, might affect us later on in life or how we are with our kids. So let's just dive in. And can you tell our listeners um, about your relationship with your mom? Sure. So I actually haven't spoken to my mom for uh, about six years now, going on seven years. I spent mm -hmm. my entire life basically seeking her approval, trying to make her happy. Um, and it actually wasn't until I started my own family that gave me the courage to finally say goodbye because it was such a toxic relationship. Um, I would be lying if I said it was easy or that it's easy even today. I think that um, no matter what, at the end of the day, she's still my mom. And so no matter sure. how terribly she treated me or how toxic our relationship was, there's still that underlying thing where no matter what, we're always going to seek our mother's approval. But Absolutely. ultimately, at the end of the day, I know it was the right decision, especially as I'm raising two little ones right now. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it's, it's still a daily struggle, but it's a struggle it's that I'm encouraging people to talk about more. It's interesting, isn't it, when you have your own children, how your mm. life literally does a 180. I mean, yes. so many things. And in fact, for me, I felt like, oh, once I have my kids, I'm going to be so much more forgiving. Sometimes the opposite happens. When you have your own kids, you realize things that were hard or challenging or felt unloving. And you think as a parent, oh my gosh, I... I could not do that to my child. I would not do that to my child. You know what I mean? So sometimes it's not the way that you you think it's going to go um, once you have your own kids. It just brings up so much stuff. So Jen, can you give us an example of a day in your life when you were a kid? Sure. Um, so one thing that um, just to take a little bit of a step back, I realized four years ago that my mom suffers from narcissistic personality disorder. And so that is a cause for a lot of the treatment that I went through growing up. It was just unfortunate that I learned this information only four, only four years ago after I had finally said goodbye. But I mean, I think the biggest memory I have of growing up was my mom liked to have me under her control and she liked to have me almost as a token of getting sympathy from people. I was always the bad child, no matter what I did. So as an example, one thing she would always do is she would always tell me that if people are nice to me, it's because they're being polite. 
it's because they don't know the real me that they're being nice. If they did know the real me, then they would not be interested in getting to know me. And then she would follow that by saying, I'm your mom, so I have to like you. I'm the only person in your life that can. And so I I struggled building relationships growing up because I always felt like if someone was being nice to me, are they pretending? Are they making fun of me? Well, sure. Yeah. Well, let me back you up now. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but just so that our our audience knows too. So narcissistic Mm -hmm. parental disorder. Can you tell us what that is? Because I have a feeling every since you found out that this is a disorder she was suffering from, that everything you're about to tell us right now stems from this disorder that she had, correct? I believe so. So growing up, I always knew that something was wrong, but I could never place what was wrong, Um, Mm -hmm. especially as I got into my teenage years and starting to meet other families and seeing how other family units worked. I would see that other families wanted their kids to be a success and wanted them to be happy. And Mm -hmm. so I always felt like there was something off, but nobody talks about what happens when something is wrong in your house. It's almost like it's, if there's something wrong in your house, the children almost take on um, feelings of shame or that it's their fault and they just don't talk about it. And that's what society teaches us is that your parents are always right. So while we're taught, if we have toxic people in our life, remove them immediately. We're also taught if it's your mother, it's up to you to make it work. So mm-hmm. narcissistic personality disorder, it, it's something that's not talked about. And I feel like people are starting to now slowly start talking about it. And what it is, is um, the easiest way to describe it is um, narcissists would have exaggerated importance. They need to be the center of attention of all time. They have zero empathy. They can do no wrong. Um, They lie, they'll rewrite history to benefit themselves, um, usually with the goal of being the center of attention or getting sympathy. Um, Gaslighting is probably their number one tool um, where they almost make you feel crazy when you come back to them and saying, you made me feel this way. And they'd be like, well, what do you mean? I didn't mean anything by it. Like just as an example. Right. Um, It's like a passive aggressiveness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they thrive on drama. They have a tendency to make you crazy, like f- make you feel crazy and make you feel like it's all your fault. Right. So the ironic part about all this is, is because um, people who have narcissistic personality disorder, they can never be wrong. Therefore, they never get help. So we actually don't know right. how many people have narcissistic personality disorder because they're hard to diagnose because they yeah. can't admit that they need anything. Right. So, when and I imagine to children, too with that yeah. narcissistic personality. I said parental personality disorder. Also, they want everything to be perfect on the outside. Yeah. So, yes. I I also bet that's a deterrent, you know, from anybody even recognizing on the outside yes. that there's anything wrong, which makes it doubly difficult to diagnose and to get the help for someone that they might need. Absolutely. Where, what is your earliest memory? Because, you know, you, I'm wondering if this is, you know, you were born into this, basically, if this is, you know, this disorder that your mom has. Um, so what's your earliest memory? Because I just think, yeah, I mean, it's hard for me. I'm trying to wrap my brain around having a child and not being loving to my child. So what is your earliest memory of mom not showing you love? I think my earliest memory would be when uh, my real father came back into my life around the age of five. Okay. Um, 
so I didn't know anything about him. And then all of a sudden, I had to meet up with this man every Sunday at McDonald's um, who was introduced to me as a distant loser uncle. <laughs> um, oh. approach, approaching wow. me Sundays, for some reason, my mom would be full of rage. And she would accuse me of wanting to go to these McDonald's dates, wanting me to have a relationship with this person. Meanwhile, I didn't understand what was going on. I didn't understand if she hated this person so much. Why is she making me see him? Right. So every week I would be, um, I would just, I don't know, be the, (laughs) I would take the brunt of her hatred for him. And it wasn't until a couple of years later that I she finally shared with me that he's actually your real father. Oh and I think gosh. it was around the age, uh, some of it's a still a bl- bit blurry, to be completely mm-hmm. honest. But I think it was around the age of seven or eight where my mom shared with me all these horrific stories about how I came into this world. Oh, and these, these stories were along the lines of he didn't want me. He tried to beat me out of her. Um She's, she's always tried to protect me, but this is why you need to hate him as well. Yet she still Mm -hmm. forced me to see him weekly. So it was such a complicated, um, dynamic because I was trying to please her, but when I would go and meet with, uh, my real dad, who I, like I said in the beginning, I didn't know was, he didn't seem like a bad guy. But yeah. yet I was in trouble for having to see him. So it was just very, that was probably the first thing. And then from there, things started getting amplified where there would be Mother's Days and Father's Days. And we all know at school, especially when I was growing up. Yes. We didn't talk a lot about what, if you didn't have a father at home or what if your family dynamic was different. So no matter right. what, you would have to do a craft for both. Which is which is very common today, by the way. For so sure. common, yeah. right? Yeah. But anytime I would do a craft, whatever I did, if it was a Mother's Day one and a Father's Day one, I would automatically get accused of making the Father's Day one better. And I would Mm. just get ridiculed. um, And I hated Mother's Day. I actually still have a fear of Mother's Day and special events because anytime there was a special event, there was nothing I could do that was right. I another memory I have and again the the age is a bit foggy but I remember I spent over a month writing a poem for my mom for Mother's Day yeah and I went into that Mother's Day thinking yes this is it I finally got it I, I right. put enough she's gonna this love gift. this yes I and unfortunately that Mother's Day she ripped it up in front of me saying, oh my goodness um, what is this garbage there wasn't enough thought put into this. And oh, it's Jen. funny because Mother's Day was the same thing up until my last year I said goodbye to her. It was always that way. You know, I'm I'm so sorry. I'm, I'm just sitting here, you know, as a mom, just cringing. And, you know, we all have our stories for sure. And mm-hmm. none of our stories are without dysfunction. Um So actually some of the things that you're talking about, you know, like my little girl did not grow up with her dad and then the school with the, you know, the, the father daughter dance. And so then her grandpa stepped in. I mean, you know, a lot of, there's a lot of that that goes on today, but for your mom to basically be your 24 seven for the most part, you know, your whole world. And I've just, I'm listening to you and none of this None of this was you. Talk about absolute, she must be a textbook, 
narcissistic personality disorder case because it seems to me that you're not anywhere in the story that you're telling. Everything is what she was thinking, what she was feeling, how it's all her problem, truly all her problem. And um, wow, I, I just, um, you mentioned something about while you were growing up and in school that you had some issues um, with your health that caused you, um, you had to take medication and it caused you to have a brain fog. Can you talk about that a little bit? Because I want to, I want to jump into the school age time when you were getting bullied at school and, um, and how you had to deal with that. Yeah. Sure. So the funny thing is, is that, so by the time I was in grade nine, I had already been to seven schools. So on a positive side, I didn't, really have too many established relationships. Um, why did you go to, to the, seven schools? Why, my why mom so much? always wanted to move. My mom always wanted to move for a change of scenery. Oh, Me I as an see. adult looking back on it, I think that she got into fights or disagreements for whatever, wherever we were living and yeah. we would move and that would be a change of scenery. She probably made messes. Yeah. I think that's what I think looking back because there wasn't really any big reason to move. It's not like we moved into a bigger house. It's not like we moved into new areas. It was, we moved from one dingy apartment to another. Right. Um, but so growing up, I just, I kind of stopped wanting to form relationships. One was because I always had that fear that people were pretending to like me. Or sure. two, my other fear was, well, we're going to move anyways. So that's that. I remember my first relationship I ever had was in grade five with a girl and my mom sabotaged it. And after that, I was just done making friends. And when I say she sabotaged it, it's she just daily tried to almost brainwash me into thinking that my friend in grade five didn't really like me and was making fun of me behind my back. Okay. You know, it's interesting because you mentioned Munchausen syndrome by proxy. And it's funny in your book, I was thinking that before I got to the part in your book where you mention it, because it seems to me it is such this little fortress that she's built for herself, right? You Mm -hmm. were also the center of her world. So you could be her pawn. So at the end of the day, it, it was not good for you to have any outside, of course, comfort or relationships or anything, you know, God forbid you wouldn't need her by the way, you know, or, or exactly. So interesting. So that does explain, um, the, the sabotaging of friendships. I think it kind of ties into that MSBP. That's it. And I think Munchausen is something that's a little more discussed, I find. Um, Mm -hmm. but I always thought that there was something about Munchausen's, but in a verbal sense, because she mm-hmm. never harmed me physically. Like, to be clear, she didn't do anything physically to me, which that is more on the Munchausen side. But I always wondered, is there a verbal aspect of Munchausen's? Because it seemed right. like anytime I was successful or anytime I was happy, she would sabotage it right. or talk me out of it or make me feel stupid for thinking that I was doing good. She would um, try to make you feel mentally sick. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So, um, but then... Going back to high school, so that was the first time I was bullied. Because like I said, growing up, I always tried to fade into the background. I didn't have many relationships. So I don't think people really noticed me, um, which was my goal. That's exactly what my goal was. But in grade nine, my appearance changed. 
So in grade nine, I was diagnosed with an overactive thyroid and it was one Mm -hmm. of the, it was a very severe case. I was getting ready to go in for an operation to remove half my thyroid and an overactive thyroid, um, in case people aren't aware is it's when your body produces too much of the thyroid hormone. So everything, your body is working overtime, your heart rate, you're sweating all the time, you're uh, pure, pure exhaustion, brain fog. And in grade nine, I was about 80 pounds. And just to wow. put in context, usually on average, you're about 100 to 120 pounds. So but when it came to physical appearance, um, I had huge bulging eyes, they looked like they were almost coming out of their eye sockets. Plus, I was balding because of this overactive thyroid, I had a lot of bald spots. Yeah. So all of a sudden, it was very hard for me to fade into the background because my appearance looked different. Mm-hmm. And so that's when bullying started. And what would happen was it was this um, it was funny because it was a smaller guy. He was a year older and he just would rally other students. And what they would do is they would line up hallways to yell things like bug eyes or throw garbage at me or try to oh, trick yeah. me or they would, they would try to target me as I was going to school. Yeah. So, and because I was ill, I couldn't even process what was happening. So I started skipping school a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I ended up skipping. Yeah. yeah, I just could, I couldn't deal. I was so exhausted and I, and just the, the hardest part about that though is, and for that chapter, that was a really difficult chapter for me to write because I really tried to get into my mindset at the age of 14. Yeah. And to be completely honest, a lot of my stories growing up that I wrote about, I really blocked out. And it wasn't until I started writing all these suppressed memories came to the surface. And this is one mm-hmm. chapter where I completely blocked out. But the biggest thing when it comes to bullying is, is that if you have a supportive home life, then right. that's an right. outlet for the child to go back home to. And right. that's incredible that there's that feel- added level. Well, you get the protection and the safety and you and resolution, uh, hopefully, exactly. you know, that you work, you have a parent there to work through it with you and to make you feel like you're not alone. So what did you do? Where did you go? So unfortunately for me, I did try to tell my mom what was happening. And my mom would accuse me of um, looking for attention, wanting to be the center of attention. She would accuse me of um, thinking the world revolved around me. Um, exaggerating. And so again, I just, I couldn't deal with, like, I, I just had nowhere to turn at this point. So I just started yeah. skipping school. The unfortunate part is that after that, um, the number of skips that I had um, was brought to the attention by the school counselor. And so That's, the school counselor brought us in. And you know what, that was probably something that made my mom extremely happy because that proved that I was that bad child that she would tell people that I was because now all of a sudden my mom's getting called into the school because of my skips. Right. And I tried to tell the counselor what was going on, that I was sick, that I was getting bullied. But my mom, again, would go into these appointments saying, you know what, just be careful because, you know, Jen has a, has a tendency of exaggerating to get attention. So she would and, undermine, if you couldn't get help yes. from her, at least you could have gotten help perhaps from your school counselor, but your mother would sabotage that as well, is what you're saying. Yes. And she loved these appointments. Loved. Oh, like, oh I they, bet. She actually asked to be a part of every single appointment we had where oh, that good. wasn't the attention. <laughs> oh, boy. So 
I think the key is, though, as I was going through some of these old stories, one thing I tried to emphasize in the book is survival tactics that I picked up on the way or key learnings. And one of the surprising stats that came to me that I wish I knew when I was 14 is that only 5% of your life is in high school. Yes. When you're in high school, you think that... It's your your whole world world, and that's going to establish your life. And no, 5% of your life is in high school. Yes. I need to tell that to my teenage daughter so she can relax a little bit. No, it's true. It's a freeing thought because 95% of your life has nothing to do with high school. So Okay. So take us to, now you finished high school. Take us to, how did you, like, did you have a breaking point? Did you have an aha moment where you were able to move on or did that, you said it, it was recent, but how did you kind of get out from under your mom, so to speak? Uh, No, there was, there was a few glimpses along the way. So um, when I turned 16 is when I got my first job and that's when I started establishing more social skills, started getting compliments about my work ethic And then I just worked my butt off. I had three jobs. I was going to school and I had the ultimate goal of getting out of my parents' house. And um, I just kept How did your mom feel about your jobs? (laughs) She hated it. It, I bet she did. She felt like she lost control and she would try to put it down. But it was the first time in my life where she didn't have any control. Mm-hmm. And it was also the first time in my life where I was learning social skills because people were interested in my work ethic, which was always good. So the social yeah. aspect came second and slowly built. So, but what really came to head was um, was when I graduated high school and I wanted to go to college. Mm-hmm. My mom talked me out of going to college for various reasons. She, none of them made sense, to be honest with you. It was... Call it, it's a bad school. You make good money now. Are you trying to be better than me? Like just, just weird stuff. And by that age, I knew, okay, something's wrong. And I was very fortunate enough. I did have a boyfriend who I started dating at 16, who came from a normal loving family and mm. he had some really big goals and he pushed me and he knew something was wrong with my mom. So he pushed me to save up yeah. for school. He pushed me to, he sold me He was me a his good car. support. Wow. He was, a, he was amazing. I, I look back on him and I think that he was what helped me survive those years. Wow. Um, and so if it wasn't for him, I don't know if I ever would have gone to school, maybe later in life, but he pushed right. me all for it. And my mom hated him because of I that. bet she did. <laughs> um, but sure. there was, after one summer, I had saved up enough money uh, to buy a car, a little used beater car. I loved it. Um, and I paid off a semester at college. Most parents, and even me being a parent now, I would have been so proud that oh, yeah. my child did that on their own. My Absolutely. mom was furious. And that's when I real that's when I really suck it, like sunk into me. My gosh, I, I have to just do this for me. Nothing else. I can't, I, I don't think I'm ever going to get my mom's approval. If that doesn't make yeah, her so proud of me, then. Nothing will. So yeah. that was kind of your aha moment in a way. That was you, the big aha moment. You said that 
In your book, you said, people treated me the way I let them, and it was a reflection of how I treated myself. And I loved when you said that, but I I always say, and I always tell my daughter, we teach people how to treat us. Mm -hmm. And 100% we do, right? So we do the best we can or we would do better. But um, so I think when you started talking about gaining some independence and getting your, you know, your first job and then actually having a relationship. Was it then that you kind of started to see the way that you allowed people to treat you or because it must've been, you, you also said something earlier too, the way that your mom treated you, it was all you were used to. So, you know, you don't really know necessarily what it's like to be treated well. So did that feel weird? Did that, you know, it's, it, it was kind of complicated. Like it was, mm-hmm. so while I had this high school boyfriend who was so supportive of me, um, looking back and honestly, I had the aha moment with about him writing the book. That's the crazy yeah. part. Cause so him and I broke up at the age of 21. I broke up wow. with him okay, and I didn't have a concrete, concrete reason to break up with him. Mm-hmm. Writing the book, what I realized was, is that I was dating a normal, healthy 21 year old who was on a normal path in life. When I was 21, I was full in survival mode. I wanted a home. I wanted to get out of my house. And I didn't have time to be a normal 21-year-old. Yeah. And so when it came to relationships after that, I didn't realize that my number one goal was to find a home. Mm. And so I dated some pretty bad guys. I dated Mm. um, older guys because they had a home and they made me feel like I was loved. But they weren't treating me well. And it wasn't until, oh gosh, 10 years ago, 11, no, maybe 11 years ago, that I went through a really bad breakup. And I sat there and I looked at myself and I said, why do these things keep happening to me? Why do I keep dating guys that are treating me poorly? Mm -hmm. Why is it I'm always getting my heart broken? I mean, I think we've all gone through life at some point and say things like, oh, boys are stupid. Boys are dumb. That's why. Our girlfriends (laughs) have all said that to us at some point. But really, at the end of the day, I finally had my aha moment. And I said, why do these things always happen to me? Right. Who's because of me. Right. You're the common denominator. That's right. Yeah. I let people treat me badly. And why did I let people treat me badly? It's because it's all I knew. I didn't know to ask for more. And it was funny because after that aha moment, I met my husband six months after. Okay. Okay. Because that was my next question. Let's start turning it around now. So, you know, you've gone through a lot on your own at this point. What was it that kind of got things set on your healing course for you. And you know, you, your book is amazing. And for the listeners out there, we'll, we'll talk about it at the end, how you can get yourself a copy because it's really a healing journey. Your book is the whole story. It's the beginning, the middle, and I would say the end, but the end is actually a beginning because it's sort of, um, you, you finding your healing journey and then also helping other people who have gone through traumatic and difficult childhoods as well and what they can do, uh, you know, in their adult lives now. So what sort of set you on this healing journey? So that summer after that big breakup, and just a long story on that bad breakup, I was in another self-destructive relationship, 
But in my mind, I, I thought that it was going to be forever with that guy. He broke up with me out of the blue. There was no warning, no signs, nothing. And I went through a summer of rediscovering myself. For the first time in my life, I didn't worry about dating. I didn't mm-hmm. worry about um, anything. I was fairly independent at that time. I mean, I had, a, I had a great job. I had my own apartment. So I wasn't in the chase mode to find a home necessarily. Right. But I finally was sitting there looking at myself going, good Lord, <laughs> every relationship is the same. And it mm-hmm. was the funniest thing because even in the book as I write about some of the relationships and, and share some really embarrassing intimate details of some of these relationships – a lot of those boyfriends blurred into one because they were all similar. Yes, yes. So that summer, I don't know what it was, but I just found this inner strength and I just said to myself, I don't want to live this way anymore. I'm tired of living like this and accepting just bad things. Yeah. And I vowed to myself, I am going to take this summer on my own. But you know what I did that summer that I've never Hmm. done in my life was I started wishing. Ah. It seems funny, but I've never wished for anything in my life. I was always Mm -hmm. in survival mode. I never thought big. I never thought about the future. I thought about how am I going to get through today? Ah, so when you say wishing, you started hoping, dreaming, getting glimpses of what you mean you want your future to look like? Ah. Yeah, I would write little lists before I went to bed every night. I would wish for a family. I would wish for a husband. I would wish to have kids, which for me, that was um, a bit of a pipe dream because I was told in my early 20s it would be very difficult for me to have kids. But I just wished. For some reason that summer, I had the courage to dream. And what Mm -hmm. I find interesting now especially is that we are so scared to dream because we're so scared to be disappointed if those dreams don't come true. That's right. The catch is, though... There's no expiry date on dreaming. Your right. Dreams, you could wish for anything. It doesn't mean it could happen tomorrow. It doesn't mean it could happen 10 years from now. But just dream and wish for good things in your life. Well, here at the this, biggest. That's a, did you know at the time that you were practicing the law of attraction? No. You know what I mean? It's And, and so yes. that's the thing, right? We start, that is the very beginning of it. You wish you think about it, you visualize it, you feel it, you take action, and then you let it go. And you let it go and you know those seeds are planted and it will absolutely happen. So it's really interesting to hear you say that, that that was just and a I natural... I I know that now. <laughs> yes, that's amazing. That that was just a natural instinct for you though, you know? So what about... What was the driving force behind you writing this book? I mean, you could have easily healed and gone through your recovery process in private. You know, what do you want those of us on our healing journeys to take away from your book, I think, most of all? So the funniest thing about the book, and I have to share this story because I knew I wanted to help people. But there's also a little element of magic that happened that brought this book to life. And I I actually dedicated an entire chapter to it. And it's called Everything Happens for a Reason. Yes. So to write this book, um, first of all, I've never written anything in my life. I've actually Mm -hmm. been scared of journaling because I I think I always knew that I had a lot of suppressed memories. And Mm -hmm. I was scared of what would come out. So the fact that I went from being scared to that to writing a full book, it's it's still a little bit crazy 
and to be completely honest, still gives anxiety a little bit that my life sure is out there, but yeah. it's, I wanted to help people. Yes, so it's good. To, to share how this book came about, I actually have to go back to 2005, and I'm going to make a long story short, but it's, I feel like it's worth sharing. Absolutely. In 2005, I was a sales rep. And I was out, I was a sales rep for Pepsi. And that's when I had to go to like convenience and gas stores and sell Pepsi and everything else. Mm-hmm. This gentleman stopped me on the street and he started talking to me about his business venture that he wanted to start. He wanted to basically see if I was interested in doing infomercials. So okay. it was really random. Okay. Yes. That's and the universe. Yes. And so he gave me his business card. I'm sure I look skeptical, skeptical about it. And he's like, listen, here's my card look me up. If you think I'm legit and are interested, let's meet up. So I looked him up, seemed legit, met him up at a restaurant, had a few friends, a couple of tables down because you can never be too safe. Very good girl. (laughs) And it was the weirdest encounter because while we started talking about this infomercial venture, all of a sudden I was started sharing stories about my life. Mm-hmm. And at that point in my life, I was still playing the a really good game of cover-up. Everything's great. Everything's normal. There's nothing wrong. And for some reason, this complete stranger, I was sharing stories about my mom. And so he said to me, he goes, it's so weird you're sharing these stories. He goes, I think there's something bigger we can work on here. Because he goes, I'm trying to get a book off the ground right now called Making It in High Heels. Mm-hmm. And this book is about um, women who have turned their lives around um, come from challenging upbringings, and each chapter is dedicated to a different woman. Um, right. And at that time, he was just starting it. So he asked me to write a chapter. So mm-hmm. I actually did write the chapter, and then at last minute, I pulled out. I don't think I was ready to share my journey yet. Plus, at that time, I was still trying to make amends with my mom, which I know yeah. sounds crazy, but again, she was my mom. I still uh, wasn't ready to say goodbye to her then. So I pulled yeah. out of the project. Um, assumed that he was very upset with me and never heard from him again. Right. So then we get to um, 2014, which is when I said goodbye to my mom. Mm -hmm. um, 2016 is when I picked up my first book about narcissistic personality disorder. Okay. And then now leading us up to last year. So the beginning of last year, I just had this thought that I need to be doing something more. Now I have all this research and understanding about what I went through. I know that people aren't comfortable talking about these things. It's still a bit of a taboo topic because at the end of the day, it is your mother. But how do I reach people to get them knowing that they're not alone? Yeah. And so I didn't know, I didn't know what to do with this thought. So I just started listening to a lot of podcasts. I started Mm -hmm. reading a lot of self-help books and I just was looking for inspiration or a sign. And Mm -hmm. that was it. So then I went to bed I woke up the next morning and that gentleman <laughs> on LinkedIn, you know how you get those, it's this person's birthday. Right. I yes. got a message. It's Sanjay Berman's birthday. Right. So I'm reading this and I'm like, oh my God, <laughs> this is weird. Yeah. I just finished listening to a podcast about how your life is full of whispers. And yes. if you're ready to do something, those whispers will be loud in your face. There's signs in the universe that are giving you. But if you're not ready, these whispers will be really quiet and you might miss them. Right. And then I wake up and then I get this message. So I just, wow. I was like, you know what? Wish him happy birthday. Leave it at yeah. that. He writes back right away. Jen, how are you? I've been thinking about you. How are, like, let's catch up. Let's meet up. 
everything else. So I'm like, okay, that's great. Yeah. Um, I have, I happen to be going into, um, the area where he lives in two weeks for a work project that I was doing. And that was it. And so the here's rest, where things get even say. funnier. <laughs> oh no, it's not even. Very quickly, I go to oh, meet Oh, take him your time. I, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I tend to ramble. So tell me when. No, I, I love it. I'm a rambler going. myself. Keep going. Nice. So I'm driving to downtown Toronto at this point, And I start thinking to myself, why is he giving me this meeting? I have, he hasn't heard from me in over 10 years. I was basically that punk kid that backed out of his project for his book at last minute, very irresponsibly. Right. And now all of a sudden he's giving me a meeting. So I'm like, okay, whatever. Let's just get, let's just do this. See what happens. Meet up with him. Um, he gives me a hug and I say to him and I go, you're probably wondering why you're hearing from me after all this time. And he goes, no, because I just saw you at this event. I knew I'd be hearing from you eventually. He thought I was someone else. Oh, That's, okay. I was going to say, wait a minute, you skipped the event. What event? <laughs> no, he thought I was someone else, which is why I got the meeting. And at this point, I was like, well, I have his ear. Let's go for it. <laughs> Started telling him why who not? it was, first of all. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, my whisper theory, how I thought this could be a whisper. And yep. I just wanted to talk to him about how I really wanted to help people and mm -hmm. see what projects he had on the go. And by the end of that meeting, we were going to work on this book. And a year later, the book's here. Isn't it amazing? So I, two things. Whispers of the heart is something that I've taught kids a lot and in various, mm -hmm. in various different sort of forums, um, teaching acting as a, as a form of... Um, drama therapy to kids in rehab. And, um, That's I've amazing. taught, I've taught, thank you, non-denominational, like, um, spirituality to kids. But one of the things, the point is that one of the things I always say is listen to the whispers of your heart. Those are the things that you like. Those are, those are the passions. Those are the hobbies. Those are the, the things you get big enjoyment out of. So it's really, I love that you said whispers because especially for people that don't have a clue as to what it is they're supposed to do or what they want to be doing, listening to those little whispers may just give you the entire path that you need. Um, so I love that you said that. And then I just have to say something really funny and serendipitous. So that book that you talked about, the first one, Making It in High yes. Heels, Yes. There's a there's a fourth edition called Making It in High Heels Women of um, Charity and Philanthropy that I did contribute a chapter to. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Yes. And so I just laughed. I laughed because this is why we have this podcast. I want people to understand how this universe works. She has a very wonderful sense of humor and is always working on our behalf. Always. Like the serendipity is just, I know Sanjay and he's a wonderful, wonderful giving, just such an yes. open heart. And yeah, but I had to share that with you because I just thought it was a good moment to show our listeners that this universe hears you. It, it hears oh, your whispers, right? <laughs> it's, it's, um, it's just amazing. So, so now the second part of my question, what do you want those of us on our own, you know, healing journeys to take away from your book, most of all, because you talk about so many things in it, like forgiveness and the power of thought, which is what we're talking about right now, how powerful yeah. we are and the law of attraction. And you have a lot in your book of, of, um, of different 
various guides and guidelines really for certain challenges in our lives and what we can do and what steps we can take, right. To, to get mm-hmm. out of the blame game and the guilt. So what is most important to you that you want people to take away from? Honestly, the, the biggest thing that I walked away from this book is, and it's funny cause I put little sticky notes everywhere where I remind myself of things And the biggest reminder I take from my book is exactly how it's written, how it's written in three parts. The first part is removing the noise, which is stop focusing on things that are out of your control. Mm -hmm. Because I felt I spent a lot of my life focused on things that I couldn't impact no matter what I did. Mm -hmm. And then moving on to the second part is doing research. Knowledge is power. And the more that you know, the more you understand yourself. And then you know what to focus on. And really... Mm -hmm. If you focus on you and what you can control, then you truly find out who you are. And from there, you find out what your passions are in life. And honestly, everything just slowly comes together after that. Mm -hmm. The other thing is, too, is that we are so hard on ourselves. And if we just realize how hard we are on ourselves, figure out how to be kind to yourself and surround yourself with people who are kind to you as well. Yes. Um, if you have the right people in your life, they want you to be happy, which is such a crazy thought because it's so simple, but yet we right. don't do that. Sometimes, right. especially someone like me who comes out of a lifelong journey of um, verbal abuse, we tend to worry about more about what other people are doing than what we're doing. So the biggest takeaway of the book is focus on you and everything else it. will fall into place. I love it. Self-love. That's what, that's really what this, um, the majority of this relationship series has been about that no matter what you're facing, what challenges you've gone through, you are facing, whether you're in a relationship or single or want to date, whatever it is, it, we, we must begin with self-love. We, we have to start with ourselves first, a hundred percent. So gosh, this has been so amazing, Jen. I am just blown, blown away by your story. I thank you so much for coming on the show. It's, it's unbelievable. And I want my listeners to, to know that if you guys want to get a copy of Jen's book, which I highly recommend, it is finding happiness, a path to self-acceptance. You can go to Jen's website, which is www.findinghappinessbook.ca. You can also purchase on Amazon. Um, I wish you Godspeed on your beautiful life's journey. And I, I hope you keep going and going and going and evolving and evolving and loving yourself more and more and more. And then come back and tell us about how that's going. <laughs> oh, I would love to. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, it's been awesome. Thank you so much. We all have our stories, and that was an incredible one. And I would also like to add that though our challenges to overcome are not easy, they are still ours to overcome. And I read somewhere that we can be the hero of our own story or the tragedy of our own story. The choice is ours. So now 
let's take a quiet moment. Let's get still. Find a nice, safe, quiet spot. And let's take a deep cleansing breath in. Breathing in spirit's healthy energy and breathing out all that no longer serves us. Let us remember that every experience we've had has shaped who we are today. We've gained strength, insight, and wisdom through those experiences, and we can share what we've learned and pay forward our wisdom to others. Today, we choose to live in the present moment where we are safe. Today, we choose to practice happiness. We choose to love and forgive ourselves for any moments we have ever felt like we let someone down. For any moment that we did not love ourselves. Today is a brand new day and we choose joy. We choose to be that which we seek. To be peace. To be present. To be loving and to be happy. Now, let's take in a deep cleansing breath that grounds in all the good energy and the good choices that we just made and created. And let's exhale out all that no longer serves us. When you face difficult times, know that challenges are not sent to destroy you. They are sent to promote, increase, and strengthen you. And that is a spiritual inspiration that comes to us anonymously today. And now I'd like to thank you guys so much for joining me here at Spiritual Alchemy with Erica. And I also need to thank my beautiful team at A Really Good Home Podcasts. Thank you, Katie Politanoff, my producer. My studio producer, Hater Mir, and he also composed our gorgeous original music. So thank you, Hater. Thank you to our recording engineer, Yale Kozinski, our wonderful publicist, Tamron Tobian. And last but never least, my senior producer, Andy Fraser, like Razor. <laughs> and then also, I really want to give a very special thank you to Sanjay Berman at Berman Books Media Corps. And again, to our very special guest, Jay Patricia Delino. Thank you again, Jen, for coming on and, and sharing your powerful story with us. Well, you guys... I really, really hope that you will remember how powerful you are and that your choices, the ones that we make in this moment, those choices set up our next moment. So they're very important. Choose wisely. Remember your power. And I will see you here next time. Bye.